You know, Josh, that's a good challenge. Uh, one of the things that Paul teaches us is that God can be about the process of doing something beautiful even as things are dying. You know what? Think about that. That God takes even death and makes it beautiful in its time. So I want to speak to you about Revelation chapter 12 uh, this week. Uh, and as you make your way there, let me tell you a quick story. The story is told of Frederick the Great, who was the king of Prussia back when that was a country. Uh, he, asked his, uh, he asked his court chaplain, Chaplain, give me proof of the existence of God. And the chaplain was a wise man, and he thought for a minute. And he said, Sire, I can give you proof in one word. And the king said, Chaplain, I don't believe you. I don't believe there is any one word that could offer me any such proof as that. And the chaplain very quietly said, Israel, sire, Israel. And what he meant was, is that despite the fact that this is a nation which has gone into slavery for 430 years, they came out the other side, a unified, coherent nation. You can't historically do that. You can't enslave people for 430 years and have them come out unified as a people on the other side. You also can't, by the way, uh, invade a nation take it over completely, burn down all of its monuments and national institutions, and ship it off into exile for generations, and disperse them across the world and have them come out of people. And that has happened to Israel twice. Most recent time is 2,000 years ago. And yet they remain a people and have even been restored as a functioning nation state in recent history. How does that happen? I'll tell you in a word. Well, actually, too, because I'm not as wise as Frederick's chapel and God's covenant is what causes that to happen. You know, we're studying this book, the book of Revelation, which is mostly about this seven-year period that is described in Scripture called the Tribulation. It's Daniel's 70th week that he prophesied uh, back about 500 years before the birth of Christ, uh, the, the coming of uh, 70 weeks to come, 70 weeks of years, 490 years uh, for the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And 69 of those take place between Daniel's day and the coming of Messiah and his death and resurrection. And then there's one more seven-year period left. And it's this period uh, known uh, in our Bibles as the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time when, when Jesus wraps up all that he is uh, trying to do in bringing the nation of Israel to repentance and the embracing of Jesus as their Messiah, and which will come culminate in the coming of the kingdom that he promised to them. But it's going to come at a, in, in great trouble and in great distress 
And it's going to bring about you know, the repentance not only of the nation of Israel, but it will bring about also the coming to faith in Christ of millions of people around the world as a result, as they see all these things unfold. And where we are in the book uh, right now is just past the hinge point of the book. If you remember, everything in the book of Revelation leads up to the proclamation of the coming of God's kingdom in chapter 11, verse 15. We saw that last week, and we referenced Handel's Messiah, which emphasizes that verse. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's the centerpiece of the book. That's what the book is about. It's about how this happened how this will happen, and then looking back on it, how it unfolded. And what you'll see in chapter 12, uh, the scripture is fond of giving you an account of events in a compressed way and then looking in more detail in another way, from a different perspective. And so, for example, you see in chapter 1 of Genesis this account of creation, and then chapter 2 you get a focus and the focus is on the creation of the man and the woman and all that was involved in doing that. And so all the way through chapter 11, you get, you get uh, a kind of a fast motion uh, picture of how all these things came to, came to pass leading up to the blowing of the seventh trumpet and the coming of God's kingdom. And we're going to take a break from that chronology here for just a second chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, and we're going to focus on some things that are happening during the tribulation period and, and what is going on and how it works. Uh, and we're going to do that first in chapter 12. So uh, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to open it up to Revelation chapter 12, and I invite you to stand with me, uh, not because we need to stand, but because we want to honor God's Word and, and, uh, and give it the respect that it is due. If you'd stand, please. The text says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the, dwell, the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. God our Father, this is a an amazing text, uh, one that just fills our imagination with images. Uh, but Father, we know these are not things which are imaginary. They are things which speak about heavenly realities that we do not yet see and cannot see. These things which are invisible are nevertheless real. Father, help us to learn what you have for us here this morning in your word. Help us to, uh, to enter into it and to absorb it into our brains and more than that, Father, into our hearts that we might uh, be changed thereby. Father, we want to live a new life. We want to live the life that Christ offers. And Father, it is by the intake of your word and the activity of your spirit transforming us that we do so. Father, help us to be nourished by your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is an amazing section of Scripture. Amen? There is no Hollywood movie that has ever made this uh, and has ever depicted this, but there is some Star Wars-looking material in here. Uh, this is some amazing, amazing stuff, and it is true. And it speaks to us of what uh, Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is now, uh, I think, a, a generation with the Lord, called the Invisible War. The Invisible War. Because there has been, since before the creation, there has been a, a conflict between Satan and those angels who fell and followed him, and God and the angels which remained with him, and the people of God who are uh, tied into God's kingdom. And at the fundamental center, I think, of that conflict is this question. Is God going to be worshipped as God or not? Is God going to be worshipped as God or not? And God allows Satan and his minions to throw up all kinds of obstacles to that. He allowed Satan to go into the garden and attempt his brand new creation, the crown of his glory, human beings, to follow him into sin. And then God said, I tell you what, I'm going to redeem the people you let into sin. And I'm going to do it through the most uh, amazing means that you have ever thought of. 
I'm going to save out of all this mass of humanity, I'm going to designate one particular people as mine and through the world and, and save the world through them. Who are we talking about? The nation of Israel. Out of all the nations of the world, God put his seal on Israel and made a covenant with them. That through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And by the way, have we been blessed by the nation of Israel? Yes. Not only by Jesus, but think of the number of scientific inventions that have come through the Jewish people. Think about the number of Nobel Prize winners there have been that have been Jews. Enormous innovation, enormous blessing has come about through the mere existence of the Jewish people in the world. But because they are at the center of God's purposes and plan, because we, even in the church, enjoy the overflow of blessings which God gave first to them and that we get grafted into, Satan has fixed his gaze on that nation. And he has poured out his wrath on that people like no other in world history. And yet they endure. Uh, the first thing that John sees in uh, verse 1 is what he calls a great sign. We don't know if it's great because it is portentous, because it is significant, or because it's huge. But what he sees is what he calls a great sign, and he sees a woman clothed with the sun, meaning that this is a glorious figure. With the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars who is pregnant and is crying out in labor pains. Now, uh, one of the things that we do around here, we watch the movie The Star of Christmas. Do you know what constellation arose on the day of the crucifixion of Jesus? Virgo, the virgin, arose in the eastern sky and she is clothed with the sun and she has the moon at her feet. You think God did that on purpose? I do. I think he's showing off. <laughs> okay. He knew exactly what would happen. And he is doing that, I think, to underline for all people, all creatures, great and small, in earth and in, and in the heavens, that they might know this. And who's the woman who is at the center of God's plan and purpose? It's Israel through whom Messiah came. Because where, do you, where else in Scripture do you see the sun and the moon and 12 stars? I'll tell you. It's in, it's in Genesis chapter 37. You remember Joseph has a dream? And he says, I had a dream, and in my dream, the sun and the moon and the 11, and 11 stars bowed down before me. This is an allusion back to Genesis 37. The sun and the moon and 12 stars. This is a, a reference to this nation made of 12 tribes that is clothed in the glory of God and even the reflected glory of the moon is under her feet. Because these are the people at the center of God's plan. 
the male child she bears is the Messiah. Amen? When it says the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the Messiah. That's the king of the world. The true king. The real king. And it's talking about the kingdom that is to come. What are the labor pains? You read your Old Testament? Does the nation suffer? Son, they suffer. They suffer the labor pains of 430 years in slavery to the Egyptians, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness while the Exodus generation dies for disobedience, 400 more years of uh, of the period of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And then about 400 years of existence as a kingdom. And then after that, 70 years of exile to Babylon. And then after that, 400 years where the, pri the, the prophets fall silent until the Messiah comes. And when he comes, he comes in a troubled time when they're not an independent nation anymore. And the king of the nations is born to a penniless peasant in a barn. These are the labor pains that John sees. The suffering of the nation as she brings forth the Messiah. Who is the dragon? The dragon is the ancient serpent. The serpent of the garden. The one who, as a usurper, currently rules all the nations of the world. That's why he has seven heads. Because it symbolizes his complete rule over everything on earth. That's why each, each of those heads has a crown. Because all of the authority of the earth currently belongs to him. I think the ten horns are uh, symbolic of the final kingdom that he will give rise to in the end times. Of a ten-nation confederacy that will, will focus his power to rule and reign in the earth. And, who, and, and what does the dragon do when the woman finally does give birth? He crouches literally at her feet, ready to devour the child. As soon as he's born. Remember King Herod? And the murder of the innocents in Bethlehem? And if you remember too, uh, the woman, Mary in this case, fled into the wilderness with her husband and her child for approximately three and a half years until King Herod died. And all through Israel's history, what has happened as Israel goes through her labor pains is that the dragon is there trying to eliminate this nation. You remember the Exodus story? You remember what the order that Pharaoh gave was? If you have a child and it's a boy, you have to throw it into the Nile. If it's a girl, you can let her live. Why would you let the girls live? Because from among the girls, you could assimilate them into Egyptian society and you could literally breed 
the Israelites out of existence by assimilating them into the Egyptian nation. And so one Hebrew mama decides, well, I'll throw him into the Nile, but I'll throw him in a boat. How about that? Little, little maternal jujitsu there. And, <laughs> and God raises up that boy to become a man who challenges Pharaoh and leads the nation out. And then as the nation gets settled into the land, finally uh, the God raises up a king after his own heart who is not a perfect man by any means. Read David's story. He is the man after God's own heart whose heart wanders quite a bit various points in his life. And and after him, the nation wanders further away and they go into idolatry to the point where uh, the, the kingly line of Judah becomes entwined with the wicked line of King Ahab. King Ahab and Jezebel's relatives interbreed with the kings of Judah and that gives rise to one particular wicked queen. You remember her? If you haven't read your Bible recently, you don't know who I'm talking about, but it's Queen Athaliah who kills every single member of the family of King David, all of the boys, except for one little kid that she doesn't know about. His name is Joash. And he's just a little infant and the high priest, a man named Jehoiada, grabs this little kid and he takes him off and hides him in the temple for seven years. Because if you're under the rule of a wicked queen who doesn't follow uh, the ways of the, the God of Israel, where do you hide that kid? In the temple, the one place that she will never go. <laughs> and so he hides this little boy until he's old enough to become king. And then he arms all the priests and they form a circle around this little boy and they proclaim his kingship and they kill that wicked woman. But it came down, the line of Messiah came down to one little infant child. Do you know why? Because the dragon is always trying to thwart the coming of the kingdom of God. If you go back a few generations before David, you may remember one particular woman who's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's a worshiper of Chemosh until she gets married to an Israelite man who dies and then finds her way back to Israel where she marries a different Israelite man, a guy named Boaz. And the line of David comes from her. You remember this? These things are all happening because the dragon is always about the process of trying to eliminate the nation of Israel and the royal line of David so that the Messiah can't come and there can be no kingdom and so that uh, all God's promises to Israel will fall to the ground. 
you may remember reading about about 70 years ago an event where over half of the world's Jewish population were literally incinerated. We call it the Holocaust, right? Who was behind that? Well, Adolf Hitler, certainly, but behind him stood the dragon. And God said, I will bring good even out of that, and I will reestablish that nation in their historic homeland. Let me explain a little, a little more of this. Uh, as you look at this text, you see some elements of what you call telescoping, where uh, the prophets would see things that are separated in some cases by expanses of time, but they would see them as happening close together because they don't realize there's an expanse of time in between them. So verse 5 and 6, where the Messiah ascends to heaven, uh, in verse 5 and verse 6, you see the woman flee into the wilderness. Uh, that's later on. And you're going to get detail on that later in the book. But then in addition to that, um, uh, in addition to that, you're going to see some more details about how this happens, how the kingdom begins to come. And the first place it begins to come is in heaven. And you see that in verses uh, 7 through 12, the first outpost of the coming of the kingdom is in heaven. And guess how it happens? It happens when we show up. It happens when we show up. When do we show up? We show up at the beginning of the tribulation. The beginning. Uh, the archangel descends and shouts. The trumpet blows and the dead in Christ rise first and we who are alive and are left are caught up together with them in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But as, I believe this is as we are rising into heaven to join the Lord, God says, Satan and all you demons, that's it. You don't get access to this place anymore because my bride is coming home. And there is, and they don't go gently when they're told to leave. There's a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his. Satan has roughly a third of the angelic realm that followed him into sin and rebellion against God. How many is that? Well, earlier in the book we saw there are at least 200 million demons that are released from the, from the abyss, so more than that are the total number of the demonic realm. How many elect angels are there, ones that serve and follow the Lord? At least 400 million, because Satan only has a third of them, remember? Um, so at least 400 million elect angels. And Satan and his minions do not win the war that starts. But what does happen is that they are thrown out. If you read your Old Testament, particularly the book of Job will give you an insight into this, that Satan and his demons have access to the throne room of God now. Even though they've been removed from their former positions in serving God, they, they still have access to the throne room of God. And so the accuser can come and stand before God and he can say, hey, did you see what Job did right there? Did you see that? 
And God can say, yes, I see. My eyes see all things and all people and all times. And his sin is covered by the blood of the Son. Oh, okay. Well, I tell you what, why don't you take some of your blessing away from him and let him experience all kinds of trials and difficulty, and I bet he will walk away from you. Just like he did with Job. He does the same thing with reference to each of us who follow Christ, right? God allows him to bring trials and difficulties into our life. And the, the question is, will we faithfully follow God or not? And every person who follows the Lord in spite of everything that happens is a testimony that God is worth following even if all the benefits and blessings thereof are not immediately apparent. Amen? But there's going to come a day when Satan and all of his demonic horde is thrown out. And it comes on the day that we arrive. You know, if you knew that the president was coming to your house, what would you do? You would clean up, right? I don't care who the president is. You would clean up, right? And you would get rid of any, any kind of filth and debris and whatever, you would make it look like one of those houses on HGTV, right? And, um, and you would clean up and you would cleanse all of the filth out of that place. And that is what God does when his people are brought home. All of you filth are out of here and you cannot be here anymore. And do you notice what he is called? The accuser of the brethren, of our brethren. In fact, it's our voice that, that rejoices and shouts over the fact that he and his minions are thrown out. And the heavens rejoice because Satan and all of his minions are no longer welcome there. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You know, people talk about heaven and, and sometimes they, they say, well, you know, I, I think... I think everybody should go to heaven. Well, I don't. Because there are some people and some things that I definitely do not want there. Amen? I want heaven to be a place where, as Micah says, everyone sits under his own, own fig tree and under his own vine and no one makes them afraid. And that's what it becomes. Because everything of evil, everything of sin... All of the evil creatures of the world are banished from that place. And it is safe for God's people. And He makes a home for us there until the kingdom comes fully and completely. And what this is, is it is the initial, the initial battle before the final battle where Satan is fully and finally defeated. And God says, well, I'll establish a sanctuary for my people right here. And you can't be here anymore. And they are driven out. And the people who are there have conquered the devil themselves. Not by themselves. But they themselves have conquered the devil. Do you see how they do it? It says that they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony that they love not their own lives even unto death. 
me tell you what that's about. That's about the gospel and a person's response to it. The gospel is that the blood of the Lamb covers over all my sin. That Jesus dies in my place and if I trust in Him that His death is for me. His life for my life. I swap my sin for His righteousness and the blood of the Lamb covers over all my sin and grants me forgiveness and grants me the right to walk into heaven as my home. That when the trumpet blows and the archangel shouts that I am with the Lord because I belong to Him. And it also says and by the word of their testimony that they love not their own lives even unto death. You know what that is? That's the marker of somebody whose faith is real. That if it all comes down and someone says your life or your faith, pick one you say, well, that's really not much of a choice. I will pick my faith. I will pick Jesus versus whatever else you're going to do to me. And real faith is that kind of faith, the, the kind that goes to the mat for Jesus. You can take whatever you want from me, but you cannot take Jesus from me. That's real faith. And it is the kind that defeats the devil and guarantees your spot in a devil-free eternity. Amen? The devil is defeated because of Christ's work at the cross and our faith until death in it. And the result is that all heaven rejoices and the earth weeps. Why? Because since he has denied access to heaven, he is able to turn all his wrath loose on the earth. And what happens when he does? As soon as he is thrown down, he's like, you know, still got some enemies down here. And he knows he's only got a short time. And he's only got a short time because he has only got a few years after that to thwart the coming of the kingdom and the plan of God, and he knows exactly how long it is. You got seven years. Make this happen. So what can I do? Well, the first thing I need to do is eliminate all the Jews on the earth, because if God's people are not here, the people whom He chose out of all the nations of the earth, if they're not here then the kingdom that He promised them can't come because there's no one around to enjoy it. And so Satan sets his wrath against the woman, against the nation of Israel. Why does he do that? Because he wants to see the kingdom and its coming fail. He knows that those seven years are directed at the redemption and the salvation of the Jewish nation. And he's going to do everything he can to prevent that from happening. In the tribulation, he will attack them with all of his terrible power in order to keep Jesus from giving them the kingdom he promised them. But Israel will escape by running to the wilderness, to the place that God has prepared for them there. Now, there are several different escapes to the wilderness that you see in Scripture. 
One of them is with Mary. Mary and Joseph take Jesus and they run to Egypt. Remember? Another, and, ha and they're there about three and a half years. Another is uh, with the prophet Elijah who moves into the territory of, uh, of Tyre and Sidon, which happens to be the center or worship of the storm god Baal that all the people of Israel were worshiping. And God, in a, in a, because his sense of humor is exquisite, says, well, I tell you what, I will move my prophet into his hometown. And by the way, while my prophet is there living in what you think is the territory of the rain god, it will not rain while uh, he is there in, the, in, in your hometown in Israel. And God takes care of the prophet for three and a half years, feeds him, gives him water until the great showdown, 1 Kings 18, Elijah on Mount Carmel, challenging the very prophet under his, I mean, under, challenging the very God under whose nose he's been supposedly living, right? We're going to see, is Baal really a God? If he is, how come he doesn't, hasn't done anything about my prophet who's living in his hometown? And on top of that, how come he can't bring the rain and I can? Because Baal's not a god. But Elijah lives there and God takes care of him. And now the entire nation will flee into the wilderness and God will take care of them like, they, like he did with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Like he did with Elijah, they will be able to flee into the wilderness. A lot of people think it will be in the rock city of Petra. Which if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you have seen a portion of it. Right? And, you, and, and one of the things that made Petra such a unique place is that there's only one way in and one way out, and it's through that little channel down into the city that they ride out of at the end of the movie. Okay, this is a little narrow thing, and it's made it a very defensible place because there's only one way in and only one way out. And many people believe that's where Israel will flee they will flee there and they will be protected supernaturally by God. Because you notice what the text says, that the, that the dragon spews a great flood out of his mouth. It says, like a river out of his mouth. Now, that may be symbolic of something other than water, I don't know. But what I do know is that it will be a supernatural attack by the devil against the nation of Israel and it will fail. Because God will supernaturally swallow up with the earth itself whatever comes Israel's way. He's like, you think, I mean, God, it's like God is saying, you think that you can attack my people and I'm not going to do anything? Let me show you what I can do. And because he'll be thwarted, Satan will turn his anger against another group of people. Do you see the text there? It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, who are those people? That's believers. That's Gentile believers. That's people who, during the tribulation, will be grafted into membership in Abraham's family through faith in Israel's Messiah. The rest of her 
offspring, the rest of her children. People who are not genetic Jews, but people who enjoy Israel's Messiah. Because see, remember, everything that we enjoy as the church is something that was first promised to and first given to Israel. We read her book. We uh, enjoy her new covenant. We believe in and worship and follow her Messiah. And we get the overflow of the blessings that God gave. And so we get to experience the reality that the Psalms talk about that says that uh, it will be said of all of Israel's surrounding nations, all of her historic enemies, this one was born in Zion. This one and that one were born in her, right? And we who have no claim to follow the living God are grafted into God's people and we become one with Israel and are counted as if we are her offspring in God's plan and purpose. And Satan will turn his wrath against the believing people of the tribulation period. Now, this is a whole ton of information. I feel like this is a message I probably should have done about three of these for this chapter. Uh, and so I feel like I've just kind of backed up the truck and dumped it on you. But let me tell you why all this matters and why it is significant to us today. It is significant because if you understand this chapter rightly, you understand that it changes fundamentally how we as Christian people view Israel and the Jewish people. There should never be, in fact, there cannot be Christian anti-Semitism. That is a contradiction in terms. And it is a contradiction in terms of much greater moral significance than such lies as jumbo shrimp and peacekeeper missile, right? Uh, this is a, a Christian anti-Semite is something that cannot, should not, uh, in fact, I would argue, does not exist. If you are a Christian and you hate Jews, something is wrong with you. Because I happen to be very fond of a, a particular one to whom I have devoted my life. Amen? And if you are a Christian, the same is true of you. And so to be a Christian anti-Semite is to saw off literally the limb that you are sitting on. So not only is it dumb, it's evil. And yet sometimes Christians have been guilty of this very thing. And there's no excuse for it. None. And if the world turns as wicked as it can, and as it one day will, then guess who we as Gentiles are called to be? We're called to be the ten booms and the schindlers who hide and protect the Jew. And if someone comes to the door and says, this is the police, do you have any Jews here? Even if we have a basement full, we're to stand there and say, like the Hebrew midwives, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen one. Okay? That's our job. That's to be our attitude toward the Jewish people because they are central to God's plan. They are brothers and sisters, though many of them do not yet know it. Amen.
It matters also because God's word matters and how he gave it matters. God promised the nation of Israel a literal physical kingdom ruled by a literal physical descendant of David who permanently rules from David's throne in Jerusalem. Has that happened yet? No. Will it happen? Yes. God who gave literal and physical promises is going to keep literal and physical promises literally and physically. Is going to happen. And why does that matter? It matters because it means that we can trust God's word to come true in exactly the way that he gave it. And it matters not just for Israel, it matters for us because God has made enormous, fantastic, amazing, incredible promises to you and me. Amen? And he has talked to us about things like crowns and literally dwelling in heaven and literally seeing uh, Jesus Christ face to face and literally ruling with him in the kingdom for all eternity. And, and if you take away Israel's kingdom from them and you say, well, you know, these things are, are, are fulfilled in some spiritual nebulous way uh, in Christ and you won't actually see them with your actual eyes then what possible basis do we as the people of God who are Gentiles have for believing that the promises God made to us of the very same kinds of things are going to come true for us? Amen? We don't have any promise of that. Because if God is in the business of breaking promises that are ancient and older than ours to them, then how can we trust that the promises that are more recent to us are going to be kept. We can't. And God is going to keep every single solitary promise in His Word in exactly the way He promised. And not one of them is going to fall to the ground. Not to them and not to us. God's Word matters. And Revelation makes it clear that God is going to keep His promises in the same way He gave them. Hallelujah, praise God. So I don't have to look for some mystical thing that, well, maybe this was the fulfillment. No, it's going to happen. You're going to see it. And you're going to see it ex happen exactly like it was given. And that means, and this is the most fundamental thing, it means that we can trust God to take us all the way home to a place where we are safe. I learned a couple of months ago that, that George Washington's favorite scripture in all of the Bible, which he quoted more than 50 times in letters to people uh, about what his vision was for America, was out of the book of Micah. And he said, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. He quoted it most poignantly to the Hebrew congregation in, I believe it was Baltimore, Maryland, who had written to ask him essentially that when America becomes, has become a nation, are, is there going to be a place for us? Are we going to be safe here? He quoted him that verse. 
Now, America has not lived up to that. I think it's fair to say. Not for everybody. Not in every time and every place. But is it fair to say that there is a day coming when it will come true for we who are God's people? Yes. There's that day coming. And we will, we will literally dwell in a literal heaven and literally be in resurrected bodies and literally be with Jesus forever and ever. And they will be nothing there to make us afraid. I read the end of the book. One of my favorite images out of it is talks about the heavenly city and it says the, the gates there are never shut. You know why you shut the gates on a city in the ancient world? It's because the enemies draw near at night. There's never night there. And there aren't any enemies. And so you never have to shut the gate. No locks on the doors. You don't need to worry about leaving your wallet out. Amen. Your cell phone will be exactly where you left it. <laughs> okay. And that's just going to happen. And God is going to keep all His promises. The dragon's going to be defeated. His time is short. And God will preserve Israel, and He will preserve you and I. And He will take us all the way safely home. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great grace. We thank You that Your promises are trustworthy. That we can hold tightly to them knowing they're going to be fulfilled exactly like you gave them. And that we'll see with our own eyes the very things that you have predicted and promised will be given. And one day we will be safely home in a place where no one can make us afraid anymore because there'll be nothing to be afraid of. Every enemy will be defeated, including the last enemy, death. And we'll be with you. Father, we look forward to that day. Help us to be the kind of people who by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony love not their own lives, even unto death. Help us to be willing to give up everything but Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.